in your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to the letter to the Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I want to boil this letter down for you. At issue in this letter is simply this, what makes a person worthy? How can a person be found worthy before God? The word the Bible uses to describe worthiness is the word justification. Jewish leaders have infiltrated churches planted by the Apostle Paul in an area known as Galatia, and they are persuading the predominantly Gentile people in these churches that in order to be justified, in order to be found worthy before God, they must not only put their faith in Jesus Christ, as Paul has taught them, but that they have to convert also to Judaism, and they must begin to obey Israel's religious law, the law of Moses. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to make it clear that justification comes only through faith in Christ, not through obedience. Justification by faith is not only the doctrine that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world, but it is also the doctrine upon which Christianity rises and falls. Paul's been explaining the theology behind justification by faith up to this point. In the verses we're going to look at this morning, Paul's going to answer two very important questions. The first is, what's the relationship of the law to justification? I mean, if, if you don't have to obey the law to be justified, what is the relationship of the law to justification? And then the second, what's the purpose of the law? We'll start with the first question this morning. What's the relationship of the law to justification? Let's read from verse 15. Paul says, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. So he's going to bring all the things that he said now down to something very concrete that we can understand. He says, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, contract would be a good word to read there, just as no one can set aside or add to a human contract that has been duly established, so it is uh, in this case. Now, to answer the question of the relationship of the law to justification, Paul is going to draw a comparison to a human contract. And as I said, when he uses the word covenant, he's talking about contracts. Now, what I want to do is I want to try to explain all that Paul is going to say in these verses with a very contemporary uh, contract scenario. I want to introduce you to Rain Dakota uh, Prescott. He goes by Dak for short. Dak uh, is the uh, quarterback for God's team, the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I'm just kidding. Dak was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys in 2016. He was drafted in the fourth round, and he was drafted to be a third-string backup quarterback to this man, Tony Romo. However, Tony Romo got hurt in a preseason game in Dak's rookie season. And then the second-string quarterback got hurt, too. Dak became the starting quarterback for the Cowboys, led them uh, to a 13-3 record that year, clinching the NFC East division title. Since then, Dak has been the starting quarterback for every game that the Cowboys play, leading the team to a 32-16 and 16 record, led them to the playoffs twice. And last year, Dak threw for 4,902 yards, which is second in the league, and 30 touchdowns, which is fourth uh, in the league. Dak's rookie contract, Covenant, is up. And Dak believes that he should be paid $40 million a year and somewhere around $110 million in guaranteed money, which is comparable to other quarterbacks in the league and to what other pastors are paid. <laughs> this is Jerry Jones. Jerry is the owner and the general manager 
of the Dallas Cowboys. Now, Jerry hasn't agreed to a contract with Dak yet for some reason. Some people, some people speculate that Jerry's not sure if Dak is good enough to be paid that kind of money. I don't know what the answer to that is, but for whatever reason, he hasn't agreed. Now, uh, what I want to do is I want to use this to help you understand what Paul is saying. Let's say that Jerry Jones decides to pay Dak $110 million guaranteed for, say, four years. They sign the contract. It's notarized. All the legal I's are dotted. All of the T's are crossed. It's guaranteed money. Doesn't depend upon how well Dak performs. Doesn't depend upon whether the Cowboys win or not. It doesn't depend upon whether Dak starts or even plays in another game. It's $110 million guaranteed. What do you think would happen if Jerry came along six months after signing the contract and says, listen, I've changed my mind on the guarantee. I'll only pay Dak the money if he throws more touchdowns and fewer interceptions than any of the other quarterbacks in the league. Can he do that? Can he do that? Of course not. No. Dak's legal reps would say, sorry, you made a deal. You guaranteed the money. Contract didn't have anything to do with Dak's performance, so you can't come along now and, and add to the contract. This is precisely the point that Paul is making. He's saying God made a promise to Abraham. And then watch this, verse 16. The, promise, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. He says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, in other words, 430 years after the promise, does not set aside the contract previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Now, last week we talked about how after Adam and Eve's sin in the garden left humanity without the life of God in them, God made a promise to a guy, a guy Paul is talking about here, named Abraham. And the promise was, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all of your descendants, and all of the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. Now, we said last week that that word bless isn't just any generic word. It's not like, you know, it's like we say when someone sneezes or something. It's not that. It's a very specific word. And what we know from the rest of the scriptures is that when God said he was going to bless Abraham and all the nations of the world through him, he was talking about Jesus, Abraham's seed, as Paul describes him, a descendant of Abraham. Jesus would be the blessing, you see. Now, Paul's point is this. God made this promise to Abraham. It was actually a, a covenant. It was a, a, a contract. We don't have time to go into it today, but God actually had a contract drawn up legally in the way that people drew up contracts in those days. And the contract was completely one-sided. It was God telling Abraham, here's all that I'm going to do for you. It was a guarantee. Paul calls it a promise. Like Jerry's guarantee to Dak. Now that's all very clear. The promise, and then 430 years later comes the law. The two don't, the law doesn't affect the promise, does it? You can't break the contract. You can't come along and say all of a sudden, in order to fulfill the contract, you've got to obey the law. You can't do that. That would be wrong. But after making that contract with Abraham, God does come along and give Abraham's descendants, who are now known as the nation of Israel, this religious law, including the Ten Commandments. 
It includes sacrifices for sin. It includes civil regulations. So the natural question is, what is the relationship of the law to that promise? And Paul says, there is no relationship. The law has nothing to do with the original promise. Jerry Jones can't offer a guaranteed contract to Dak and then come along and say, I've changed my mind. You've got to throw more touchdowns, fewer interceptions. He can't, he can't do that. That's wrong. And if that's wrong for a human contract, then the perfectly holy good God isn't going to do that either. He's not going to come along and say, hey, I've changed my mind about that promise I made to Abraham about sending Jesus and, and you know, just being a promise. Uh, now hear this. You must obey the law for the promise to be fulfilled. No, that would be wrong. That's all Paul is saying in these verses. It's that simple. Chronologically, the law came after the promise, so the fulfillment of the promise has nothing to do with obedience to the law. Now let me draw this to a very fine point. Paul is saying to the Galatians and to the Jews who are trying to convince the Galatians that they must obey the law, Paul is saying obedience to the law never justified anyone, not even the patriarch of the Jewish people, Abraham. Abraham believed God, God's promise about the Messiah, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, justification. He believed God. He didn't, didn't say anything about his obedience. It says he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The only way Paul is hitting this over and over again in the book of Galatians. The only way to be justified before God is through faith in Christ. The law can't, just you, uh, can't justify you. Behavioral modification can't justify you before God. No religious standard can justify you. No Christian standard. No personal standard. No matter how good the things might be in those standards, they can't justify you. Praying every day can't justify you. Being baptized can't justify you. Reading the Bible every day can't justify you. Giving can't justify you. Coming to church can't justify you. And if you try to make any of those things your justification, you will live your life on a roller coaster of God loves me, God hates me. God loves me, he's mad at me. Based upon your obedience to whatever standard that you have for yourself. And that's a terrible way to live. Terrible way to live. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God makes a promise to you. Believe me about Jesus, that he is your justification, and you'll never have to live another day of your life with the pressure of having to prove yourself. You'll never have to live another day of your life on the roller coaster of performance again. Now remember, folks, remember this. Those of you who are here today who have placed your faith in Christ, remember that this letter was written to people who have placed their faith in Christ too. These are people who came to Christ like you did, by grace, but have now gotten back on the roller coaster of performance. And Paul says, no, no. Obedience is never the basis of a relationship with God. Faith in Christ is, and that's it. And yet, I have to admit to you this morning, there are times, maybe like many of you, that I find myself on that performance roller coaster, where I begin to think God loves me and God hates me on the basis of my obedience or compliance to some standard, standard that I have, standard someone else has for me, I don't know. And I ride this roller coaster. 
And can I just tell you a thought that has gone through my mind when I'm at the lowest? It's a terrible thought. It's one that no pastor is ever supposed to confess to people. But here it is. Sometimes I think when I'm at the lowest point on that roller coaster, I shouldn't have ever become a Christian in the first place. I mean, like if I wouldn't have become a Christian in the first place, I wouldn't be feeling so terrible about myself right now. Like there wouldn't be this biblical standard that I have to live up to. Like people who don't come to Christ, they, they don't have to live according to this standard. They don't, they don't have to live with all of this that I have to live with. Besides the terrible inaccuracy of believing that I could possibly be justified by living up to any standard, even the Bible's standard, it's also terribly inaccurate for me to say that people who don't believe don't have the pressure of living up to a standard. Everyone knows intuitively they need to be justified. Even people who say they don't believe in God, they just make up their own laws. They make up their own standards. But those standards become just as crushing as the Bible standards if you try to justify yourself through them. Just ask the mom who says to herself, I've got to be a perfect mom. Ask her how crushing that is. Being a perfect mom can't justify you. Trying to be one will crush you. You'll see all of your flaws. You'll compare yourself to all of the other moms on the internet. It's terrible. Ask the student who says to themselves, well, I'll get straight A's and that'll be my, my form of justification. It'll only leave you with anxiety. You'll always be worried about your grades if that's your justification. Ask the woman who says, well, if I weigh a certain number on a scale, well, that will justify me. It won't justify you. It will become an obsession. It will crush you. You will always be thinking about it. Ask the person who says, well, belonging to the right country club. If I can just belong to the right country club, well, that will justify me. That won't justify me. You will always be petrified of rejection. It's a terrible way to live. To believe that you can justify yourself by something that you do, whether it's religious, whether it's not religious, it's a terrible way to live, to think that the only way that I can be worthy is if I prove myself. Awful. You will always live with anxiety, guilt, and shame. Always. You will never get away from it, because even if you get what you think will justify you, you will always live scared that you'll lose it or that it will be taken away from you. Last week, we referred to this as the curse of self-justification. Self-justification always makes you, we said, pathologically possessive and pathologically defensive. God, in His great love for humanity, found a way to rescue us from the torment of separation from Him eternally and from the psychological torment of life separated from Him on earth. And the way... Is through the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. The only way to be worthy, the only way to be justified is through faith in Christ. And make no mistake about this, folks. That isn't just a Christian truth. That is a truth for all people, in all times, in all places, in all cultures. God made a promise to Abraham 430 years before the law ever came. And so the fulfillment of the promise had nothing to do with obedience to the law. That's 
what he's talking about in the first question. What's the relationship of the law to justification? And Paul says, there's no relationship. Well then, that does beg the second question, which is what is the purpose of the law then? Which Paul asks explicitly in verse 19, he says, what then was the purpose of the law? If, if it wasn't the way to be justified before God, what, what was it? Why did God give the law? And Paul says in the next few verses, he says there are three reasons that God gave the law. Here's the first one. The first one was to blast you out of your self-deception. That's number one. Uh, again, verse 19, Paul says, he says, it was added, he's talking about the law, it was added because of transgressions, that's a word that means sin, until the seed, Jesus, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was put into effect through angels, verse 19, by a mediator. A mediator, verse 20, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Now, let me just tell you something about those last two verses, verses 19 and 20, talking about an angel and a mediator. I'm not kidding when I tell you that no one has any idea what Paul means by that. Seriously. There are 300, somebody counted it, there are 320 different interpretations of what Paul is meaning when he says that. No one has any idea. I'm not going to solve it for you this morning. But the good news is that the rest of what Paul is saying is clear enough. He's saying that the law is given because of transgressions, sins. See, it's our nature as human beings, right, to live with massive amounts of self-deception. We spend inordinate amounts of emotional energy denying the reality of our sinfulness. Sometimes in, in marriage counseling, I'll point out something to someone. For instance, I might say, I might say to one of them, I may say, you know, you know what you just said there seemed, it seemed really very manipulative. To which they will always say, that's a terrific observation, tell me more. No, no one ever says that. No one ever says that. Not at first, at least. They'll usually say something to the effect of, well, I'm just trying to get him, or I'm just trying to get her to do what I'm asking. In other words, they're denying. They're denying their sin. They're denying their sinful manipulation of their spouse. And this is why the law was given. It was intended to blast you out of all of your self-deception and show you the sinful nature of your heart by revealing the pristine goodness and holiness and purity of God. That's why it was given, number one. To blast through your self-deception. You're broken, you're a sinner, just own it. Number one. Number two. Number two. The law's purpose was to show you your true condition. Skip down to verse 22. We'll come back to verse 21 in just a few moments. Verse 22. But the scripture declares that the whole world, here it is, here's your condition, here's your true condition, the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, before this faith came, we were held, there it is again, prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. As much as we like to talk about free will, our true condition is that we're prisoners of sin. Locked up. Prisoners of sin. How so? I want to use, let's use a commandment. Let's, let's use a commandment. Let's pick one. Let's say, let's use the commandment that says, do not covet. In other words, if you want to be able to self-justify by the law, then you cannot covet. You must never covet. One night, let's say, I'm sitting around in the middle of a gray, cold Midwestern winter watching a TV show about people who live, say, in the Bahamas. And I suddenly start to realize I'm coveting their life. And I realize, oh no, 
I just did what I'm not supposed to do. I just coveted. I've already broken the law. I can't justify. But then I think to myself, don't covet anymore. Don't covet anymore. So I changed the channel. Now I'm watching a show about people who live in San Diego, and suddenly I realize, oh no, I'm coveting their lives now too. And so I change the channel again, and I say, don't covet, don't covet. I go to ESPN, and I hear that Tony Romo just got a contract from CBS paying him $17 million a year just to announce football games, and now I'm coveting Tony Romo's life, which then reminds me that Dak Prescott is going to get paid $40 million a year, and so now I'm coveting his life, and then I realize that Jerry Jones has more money than God, and I'm coveting Jerry Jones' life. You get the point, right? If not coveting is the way to be justified before God, I'm in trouble because I, here's a double negative, can't not covet. The law shows you that you're actually a prisoner of sin because, here it is again, you can't not sin. You can't self-justify. You're not a person who just needs to do better or be better or obey a little more. You're a prisoner in need of a rescue. And so the law was given to blast you out of your self-deception to show you your true condition. And then third, it was given, verse 24, to point you uh, to Christ. Verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be, notice what he says, justified by what? Say it with me. Justified by what? Faith. Not obedience. Faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Twice in those two verses, when Paul says that the law was put in charge, and then when he refers to the supervision of the, of the law, Paul uses a Greek word from which we get our word, pedagogue, which means to teach or to lead children. He's saying that in the same way that a tutor or a nanny prepares a child for adulthood, the law was intended to prepare you to point you to Christ by showing you your need, by blasting you out of your self-deception, by showing you your true nature. And the whole law was all about Christ to begin with. Every sacrifice in it was all about Christ. It was all intended to point you to Christ. And Paul keeps saying in these verses, now that you've placed your faith in Christ, the law has served its purpose and you've been freed from it. And notice that in, in, in all three of those purposes that Paul just spelled out, there is nothing about the law justifying you. It was just intended to blast through, to blast through your self-deception, to show you your true condition, and to point you to the one who could justify you. That's it. The law was never intended to solve your sin problem. It was never intended to make you worthy. It was never intended to justify you. Let me give you another example that might help you think about this. Lately, uh, I've been reading a lot of articles about the need to, to, be, to be hydrated. I, my wife has been talking to me about this, and, and I've been... So I've been reading all these articles uh, about it, and uh, here's, the problem is I... I hate the taste of water. I just do. And I don't like taking the time to drink. So in one sense, as I read these articles, they're telling me something I don't want to hear. They're telling me that I'm not self-sustaining and that I need water for my body to function well. And you could say, well, I mean, that's awfully mean of those articles. 
But it's really not mean of those articles to tell me that, is it? They're telling me something good, something that I really need to hear. But, but, reading those articles, those articles themselves, like they're good. But they can't hydrate me. They can't hydrate me, can they? All they can do is tell me what I need. And this is what Paul is saying back in verse 21 when he says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Are the articles Jeff's reading about uh, hydration opposed to Jeff hydrating? No, of course not. If an article had been given that could hydrate, hydrate Jeff, he'd be thrilled. But it says, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. That would be wonderful if it could, but it can't. The law, like the articles about hydration, it's good, it points you in the right direction, but it can't solve your problem. Can't justify you. Can't do it. Only faith in the one who called himself living water can justify you. There are often two very predictable responses to a sermon like this. And frankly, it comes from two different kinds of self-justifiers. One is from the perfectionists. The perfectionists hate hearing about sin because they already feel beaten down by their over-awareness of their failures. You know, they have this standard, they like to pretend like they're perfectionists, and they like to make you think that they're perfectionists, but really they just feel beaten down all the time because they can't ever live up to their standard. And so when they hear a sermon about sin, they, this is what I don't like about Christianity, they say, this is why I don't come to church, it's so negative, I don't want to hear about what's wrong with me, I want to hear about what's right with me. That's one response. The other response is from what I like to call the manipulators. Manipulators are often nervous about a sermon about justification by faith. They'll ask this, if obedience isn't necessary to be saved or to be justified, why would anyone obey like, there's no motivation. If you don't have to obey, why would you? Why would you pray? Why would you read the Bible? Why would you give money? Why would you come to church? Why would you love your neighbor if you don't have to, to be justified? You see, as soon as they ask the question, they're revealing a couple of assumptions, and here they are. One is, their assumption is, obedience to God is just awful. No one would ever want to do that unless they had to. And then the second is, therefore, you've got to threaten guilt and shame people into obedience. That's the manipulators. And it's tough being in a relationship with either of them. Both are self-justified. Like on the, on the one hand, you can't ever criticize the perfectionist type because they attempt to self-justify through a standard of perfection in all areas of their life, which is to really say that they never really self-justify because they're always failing to meet that standard. So they feel like failures, and they're oversensitive to criticism even though they think of themselves as tough. And so you're constantly having to validate them all the time. Tough being in a relationship with those kind of people. It's also tough being in a relationship with the manipulative types, too. Because they think that threats, guilt, and shame are God's way of getting compliance. And so you can be sure that it's also their way of getting what they want from you. Guilt, shame, and threats are the primary tools in their relational work belt. Both. People, both sets of people, both of those responses miss the incredible beauty of the gospel. On the one hand, for the perfectionists, 
It's impossible, it's impossible to know how deeply loved you are without confronting the depth of your sin and the exorbitant price that Christ paid price that Christ paid to redeem you. It's impossible to understand how deeply loved you are until you face that. And then on the other hand, for the manipulators, it's impossible to understand the transforming power of love until you face the fact that a great deal of your obedience has all along been a strategy for rebelling against God through fear-based conformity to some standard. Rather than love for the God who redeemed you through the slaughter of his own son, instead of trusting in justification by faith, you've been trusting in yourself. At the cross, the perfectionist is liberated to acknowledge their sins without being condemned, and it frees them then to, to love the people around them instead of using relationships as a means of personal validation. And at the cross, the manipulative type encounters a power they've never considered before, the transformative power of unconditional, sacrificial love. And when they really experience that, they free the people around them from the self-centered, manipulative web of control that they've spun through threats and guilt and shame, and they just begin to love them unconditionally, sacrificially. They give them freedom because that's what the gospel does. Those of you who are here today who would consider yourself perfectionists, I'm going to tell you something that the people around you won't tell you. They're deathly afraid to criticize you. And they feel used by you as a tool for your validation. Manipulators, I'm going to tell you something that the people around you won't tell you. They feel controlled by you, not loved by you. And that creates deep resentment, which you then try to meet with more manipulation, more threats, guilt, and shame, and it doesn't work. Justification by faith is not just some esoteric theological debate. It is immensely practical. The way you view justification, the way that you view how you are made worthy, will affect all of the relationships in your life for better or for worse. City Church isn't going to realize this vision by a bunch of self-justifiers. We need to fill the city of Evansville with people who have renounced self-justification and who are able to love people because to love people, not use people, to love people, not threaten guilt and shame people because we have been justified by faith in Christ, and we know that. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? This is also counterintuitive, Lord Jesus. Everything about us, our instincts tell us, in fact, everything else about it, everything else in the world tells us that we're only as good as we're performing, as our performance. Everything in the world says earn. You've got to earn it. And along comes you saying, I'm going to give you something by grace. 
And it's so hard for us to comprehend. It's so hard for us to believe. Lord Jesus, one thing I know is that I can't communicate any of this clearly enough to penetrate hearts. Only your spirit can do that. And I pray this morning that your spirit would indeed do that. That you would drive the truth of justification by faith home. And as a result of being justified by faith, the beauty of that of what Christ did for us on a cross. The beauty of that would change the relationships that we have around us, all of them. And we pray these things now, Lord Jesus, in your name.